The Caring View, bringing you unfiltered conversations from the world of social care and health. Presented by me, Mark Tops, and me, Adam Fennell. Sit back, make your notes, and prepare to be inspired. Powered by carestartgroom.com, the care marketplace with everything you need to provide great care, including the kitchen sink. Yes, including the kitchen sink. If you don't believe us, go and check them out. Good evening, good evening, good evening, and welcome to The Caring View, the online social care chat show available on YouTube and all major podcasting sites. You can watch us live every Tuesday on YouTube, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Before we get started, don't forget to subscribe, hit the likes, hit the stars, hit the bells. I'm sure there's shapes of other sorts that you can click to make sure you don't miss out on our episodes. And anything we discuss tonight, uh, the views are our own and not of our respective companies. Mark and Paul, good evening. How are we both? I'm good, thanks, Adam. Yourself? I'm good, thank you very much. I'm good. I'm cooler tonight. Mark, how are yeah. you? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you very much. I would say I'm cooler. It's spent most of the day raining, but it's still so hot. It's like when you're on holiday, you know, when the rain is warm, so it's just really muggy. But yeah, no, otherwise, I'm good. You've both got a very cool background. Well, <laughs> mine's falling apart. Look at this. Bloody falling apart. I made it myself and it's bloody falling apart. Um, <laughs> Gotta try and dress the scene, you see. It's, it's shocking. Um, yes, yeah, so what have we done in the heat? Anyone who is watching the show, whether you are a provider, whether you aren't a provider, whoever you are, how have you managed during the heat of this past week? Pop them in the comments for us. Have you faced any problems? Have your services been affected? How are you finding it now that the heat's gone and the rain's coming followed by the flooding? We do want to know and we will have those conversations. I myself have not coped at all. I hate, well, I don't hate the heat. I love the heat, but I'm also three times the size of a normal human being. So uh, the heat affects me tremendously. So I spent all of Sunday just in Lake Coniston. I'm very lucky. I live close to the Lake district went up at nine o'clock in the morning parked up picnic that was it in the water in the lake all day long mark and paul mark paul you're a northerner like myself aren't you so how have you found it because we it's been hot for us hasn't it oh it's yeah it's cruciatingly hot i mean anything that goes over 24 degrees and we are melting um around here but yeah do you know what it, it's been beautiful i think sometimes you just got to realize that we only get it for sort of like about six days a year if we're lucky so got to make the most of it but yeah we're northerners when that rain comes we're sort of like the most pleased people in the world i think waterproof clothing is just like a standard in our in our <laughs> wardrobes up here <laughs> waterproof clothing and thermals uh mark southerner used to this sort of <laughs> uh, mediterranean climate how have you found it yeah do you know what? i absolutely love it because i love the heat and i love the sun and i'm not one for like fans and air con so yeah it's been great i mean at times it has been too hot especially when there's no kind of like breeze when you're outside but yeah i, I long for it to continue like i'd like this every day like if i could i'd live in australia and then come back here for our summer and just go back out there oh god no where where, where more wildlife will kill you than there are risks in this country no thank you <laughs> i think there is something to be said though because it's one of those, I like the heat, I want it to continue, but then I also recognise that potentially some of it's global warming and I don't want to kill the planet, so uh, how do we keep it without doing any more damage? And how do we keep it in a country where we don't have the infrastructure for it? So our buildings are meant to keep heat in, 
You know, we have cold winters, keep well, we used to have cold winters, keeps them in. Our care homes, majority of them, are not purpose built. No. So what needs to change moving forwards? Before we get into tonight's discussion, what do we need to do to, to make sure that these houses that Jack built, these jack of all houses, all these hodgepodge together buildings can survive the coming summers, which are just going to get longer and hotter? I do think you're right. I do think that this is kind of the norm. I can't help but think that actually the climates across the across the world are changing and actually we're going to become the hot country and places like Spain and Italy and that will actually become more wet and rainy and cold. The one biggest thing that I heard from registered managers throughout kind of the heat is around medication and how they keep that medication cool. And that's definitely something that going forward, care homes are going to have to think about and how they do it. So we had registered managers that had fans with ice packs turned like strapped onto the blowing onto the meds cabinet. Um, people that were putting it out, you know, near a freezer, you know, probably not doing the best to the actual medication itself. So yeah, definitely something to consider. Or a smaller room with aircon or something. But yeah, it's where the money's gonna come from and yeah, whether people have got the space and I, I think it brings in a whole host of problems there as well, Mark. You know, at the end of the day, Adam's right, most care homes are high proportionally they're not new builds they don't even have air conditioning fitted um so therefore you get a lot of people that are running out and buying fans cheap fans from b&q and that brings along with a lot of uh, hazards as well but then with the rising energy costs as well those things are extortionate to run so there has to be you know we do have to be thinking in that sort of like future contingency plan in, in the, the heat what is it that that we can do better with our, our buildings and you know, at the end of the day, in, in most uh, care services, you are looking after vulnerable people who will dehydrate very quickly. And um, it's, I suppose sometimes it's about keeping people cool as opposed to exposing them to heat. So I, I was um, advising someone um, earlier in the week and I said, you know, going outside in this is actually a worse case scenario than staying in, at least you're cooler. I'm fortunate because in my office, I've got air conditioning. But um, it only goes on twice per year. <laughs> I mean, we talk about air conditioning being like the answer. There are countries that are limiting what temperatures air conditioning can go to because of, yeah. of energy prices and everything. I mean, there's simple things we can do, isn't there? Especially if we are care homes. Having make sure we've actually got thermometers around the building. None of these sort of hard to read mercury things. Yeah. Really accurate indoor room temperature thermometers. Because it sounds counterproductive, but if it's really, really hot outside and it's hotter than it is inside, don't open your doors and windows because you're letting yeah. all your cold air out. It sounds daft in the summer. No, it's right. But it's our homes. It's something we need to consider. And we're going to struggle if we don't have those thermometers. So simple cheap things like that a couple of thermometers outside so you can you know do a, an average temperature thermometers inside so you can do an average temperature inside there's little simple things you can do and you're right you know i love fans I, i've got a fan at home which i'm sure used to belong to a jet engine because it is just incredible and if i if i position it just right it blows right up my shorts and keeps me nice and cool you know but you know people are told that fans are infection control problems and you know we have all these different issues so yeah, I think there's definitely a government initiative needed here, whether it's a sort of reduced aircon scheme, whether it's a reduction right. yeah. on um, energy prices. One of the two, I think, are definitely necessary moving forward. What we can't do is just say, well, all these car homes are going to have to go in the end and we'll have to upgrade them like we are doing cars because it's just never going to happen. The population's growing 
too fast. Uh, anything else, Mark, that we need to tell people about tonight? Um, what do we need to tell people? So we do have a new website. Now, I'm not going to announce this. I'm going to hand this over to you, Adam, to announce because you've done all of this and you've built it all. I can't take credit for any of this, so I'll let you explain the new website. No, we're just, I mean, you'll have noticed that we have got a new sponsor for the show, the sponsor, uh, carestockroom.com. They are a fantastic supplier for care providers, not just care providers, anyone can use their services and they do give really decent discounts in prices um, of their products. That wasn't my pitch, that was just me explaining who they are. My pitch is done at the beginning of the show for me, so I don't have to remember that each week. However... We do have our sponsorship. It is, you know, a sponsorship for the show. We don't make money from the show, Mark and I. But what we do have is uh, funds available now to help us support people who uh, we want to be a part of the show, whether that's in person or digital, but need, um, you know, recompensing for it, whether they need to pay carers to be involved. We want it to be as an inclusive an accessible show as much as we can do but part of our sponsorship we have managed to create a website it's very simple it's one page on it at the moment but you can listen to the podcast directly from there you can view the latest episodes on there you can get in touch with us whether you want to be a part of the show anything that you want to bring up on the show episode ideas just give us feedback tell us how rubbish we are tell us how fab we are you know tell adam that he looks cool on a casual tuesday and to stop wearing his button-up shirts whatever we can do that directly from the website. It also links you through to our partner, our IMDB page, um, and directly through to our Facebook group as well of our as, as well as our other socials. There will be a blog coming to it um, at some point. Mark and I are going to work on getting that done. Mark, I don't know whether you agree, but I think it'd be great if people want to guest blog on it. If people want to be able to submit blogs for us, um, anything of interest that you want to talk about, please feel free to to get in touch. We'll add that to the the, the communication side of things, but. I think it's about time that we went for a website because we're doing more now. We've got uh, Care Sector's got talent that you and I are Anton decking at, Little Enlarging at. Um, and we're doing more of the live care shows now and the conferences. And we're doing more of the big high-profile talks. So it was just the next step for us. And just to make it easier for everyone to find us, we were using Linktree, but as much as I understand Linktree, I know it can be confusing for some. So brand new website. It is now on our footer on the bottom going along with the screen. Um, so do go check us out, and if you aren't already, subscribe to the YouTube channel, otherwise you will miss out on some really good, juicy episodes. Was that enough, Mark? That was enough, I think so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, tonight, 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 succession planning. I know what it means, Mark knows what it means, Paul knows what it means, but... There are a lot of providers out there who don't know what it means. There are a lot of managers and leaders out there who do not know what succession planning is. And more scary is there are people out there who are just joining social care for their career who have no idea about succession planning and won't be taught about it. So important, important, important conversation tonight. Paul, do you want to introduce yourself for us once again? Just let everyone know who you, you are, you beautiful man. <laughs> yeah, so my name is Paul Blaine. Um, I'm the managing director of SBL Care Homes and the managing director of uh, CBAT, which is Care Business Associate Training. So um, succession planning is definitely in my DNA and I'm looking forward to the conversation tonight. And also, Paul um, is one of the four founding members of the Health and Social Care Club, which you can find on Clubhouse. Hiatus for summer at the moment, but you are back in September, and I urge yeah. everyone to go in, uh, 
listen to it. It is a great show. Jump up on stage. You can have the conversation directly with them. Mark is another host of the um, Health and Social Care Club. So definitely worth a listen. Definitely worth participating in. So, yes, succession planning. Where do we start tonight? Right at the beginning, I think. With a plan. With a plan. I think a lot of companies, and I think we just spoke about actually there's a lot of people joining social care that don't know anything about it, but I was Googling that less than half of companies say that they have succession planning in place, which is quite worrying because that's not just social care, that's every company. And I can't help wonder, okay, there are a lot of people that seem to be, or a lot of companies that seem to have a lot of vacancies, and a lot of that is to do with the pandemic, but how much of that actually could have been prevented Absolutely. if they had succession planning in place. Absolutely. So what is succession planning? You know, very simple. What is it? For those who are watching that have no clue, who live under a rock and don't know how to encourage their teams, what is succession planning, Paul? I, I think the easiest way in which you could look at it is to look at every position uh, within your company and look at the person that's doing that role and say to yourself, if something happened to that person, who would do that role and how critical would it be to the business if there was no one that could do it? How would it affect operations? How would it affect finances, et cetera, like that? If you are looking at that position and you're thinking, oh my goodness, if they left or they, they, they were ill or they left the country, we're in trouble. Now, if you are in your business and you're looking at any position, including your own, you may be the MD, and that is the situation you're in, then you're in a high-risk category. So at that point, you should be at your core thinking about who are the successors for every position that is strategic within the company. And um, if you're using the word irreplaceable, then you need to find a way to make that replaceable. Hopefully, you won't need it for a long time. but people hand in notice and people disappear uh, within a week. So on that basis, what is your succession plan? It, it's, it's, it's technically speaking succession plan, it's your successor. Who's the successor to that role? That's what you're looking for. I completely agree. And Paul has just made a good comment in the chat saying about how much he appreciates us covering this tonight, especially when turnover is, is so high. And I'm one of these people where turnover is great if it's low. But I also think turnover is great if it's high, but the influx of replacements is matching. So I don't think we can... I think we need to get out of our heads that high turnover is bad if it means that the majority of the people who are leaving us are going on to better things and that we're replacing them with new people who want to achieve the same. Because there's a difference about losing staff and not being able to replace them. And in fact, actually developing staff while they're in your team, shipping them off to go and be managers elsewhere and to make social care a, a wonderful lollipop licking land. And new people coming in and going, actually, I want to see what they've done and I want to do it as well. But I'm going to benefit your business at the same time whilst you train me up. So we've, we've got to try and reclaim turnover as a case of, actually, this is our successive turnover instead of this is our negative turnover. Um, but saying that, I've not been a manager now for... But Adam, Adam that's the importance of understanding why employees are leaving you and not burying your head in the sand, you know, because there is the upside. You know, I've been in a position before where I had three people go through the Registered Managers Award um, and there was one position that I had available for that award. Now, 
the reality is three years of progression. I got out of three people. One person went on to be the manager. The other two people, you know, took management jobs elsewhere. But they will always be, um, you know, I'm not necessarily going to turn around and say they'll always be forever grateful, but they'll always be part of my network because we progressed them, but we progressed them to a point where they had to go on to further their careers elsewhere. I wish I could have uh, maintained them, but the reality is I'd much rather be in that position than the position where I hadn't and I had stumped growth and then tried to, tried to go out externally and find someone to fit a model um, who didn't know what a model of values were. I think when we also talk about turnover of staff from experience, is I took over a service and it was failing. And I remember the staff just didn't have the right values for the company. They didn't want to be there. They were clearly there because they could turn up, not do anything with the residents, go home at the end of their shift, get paid. And there was no engagement. And the place was just dull and dowdy. And to be honest, it was dead. And we got rid of all the staff by one member of staff who said, look, actually, I really want to change. But the CQC and the local authority looked really down on it. And actually to the point where it was then put in the CQC report, we had to contest it and say, well, actually, here's the reasons why we've done it. Turnover might look high, but actually that's because we've got rid of a whole staff team. We've replaced a whole staff team. Half of them have fallen by the wayside of what the old team were. And half of them have, you know, shaped up and are doing the job we want. And then we've replaced that other half. And actually one thing the CQC said to me was actually, if you've got high turnover, document the reasons why. Is it actually that it's because it's poor performance or is it because actually... We're succession planning, we're moving people on. And I kind of look at my company, we do very well at promoting internally. We've got a number of different roles so people can progress quite quickly if they want to into different roles. And we do like reagement, we've got day centers and equipment services. So there's a lot of different services. So they can transfer very easily throughout the company. But actually, when you look on paper, it probably looks like it's very high turnover of staff leaving like the services that I look after. But actually, they're still within the organization. Yeah. They're just doing something else. So yeah, having that documented and clear so that actually when you have your local authority audit or your CQC inspection, you've got that to hand. And actually, if you put it in a graph or something visual, it's a lot easier to kind of picture as well. Oh, wouldn't it be easy if CQC could just access the Ask WDF data, which is what we're supposed to fill in anyway, which says where people are leaving and whether they're staying in social care and what roles they're going to be doing. I do yeah. question why we have all these bloody data streams if no one actually does anything with them. It, honestly, it really wazzes me off because what you've just said, Mark, as much as it's you know common sense to do it within our own files, is what AskWDF does. It wants to monitor who's leaving the sector. It wants to monitor where people are going and what they're doing. Ah, oh, just replication, replication, replication. And actually, succession planning needs to be simple for the managers and it needs to be simple for, for our leaders. Otherwise, it becomes... Um, well, it becomes a, a pain, doesn't it? So I want to touch on, before we get into where we start from, because it's just come into my mind, exit interviews. Is there a point to them? Because if we're going to be succession planning and we've got people who are going elsewhere, great, we know they're going, they're going to want to sit down and talk to us and we can document that. But data is only effective if we can have a complete view. And I would just question whether they're effective for people who are leaving us and don't want to come and go, actually, yes, I will sit down and have an exit interview with you because I'm leaving you. So... Uh, of course, I'd love to spend more time with you. So exit interviews, is there a point to them, Paul? I think there is, um, but I think it has to be done in a very um, professional and sensible way. Um, for instance, I don't believe the manager sitting down with someone and having an exit strategy meeting is always going to be the best example because this person may actually be leaving because of the manager. 
So I, I often, and, and that's hard to take when someone's telling that to your face. And if they're disgruntled and they're leaving the will, or they'll clam up and not tell you and make up a host of other reasons. I think if you actually want data and data is so effective in making decisions, but it's got to be accurate data. And therefore, if, if I was an organization looking at exit strategies, I would look at an external method in which that can be done um, and a tie-in in the contract that it actually has to be part of your exiting from the, the company. I don't believe in sending a questionnaire out um, and hoping that you get feedback from that. I think it is a one-to-one -one meeting over Zoom just to ensure you know you're, you should be looking at it in ways to improve it's not about it's not a vanity project when someone's leaving you to say what have we done that's been amazing for you it should be you know take us back from the start take us through your career journey take us through where we could have supported you better or you felt we did support what works what doesn't you know the person's left or they're leaving at that point it shouldn't be used as a a vehicle to try and convince them to stay you know that could have been done earlier in the process this should be maybe conducted a week after they've left when they've had time to reflect and you are looking for key strengths in how to in lessons learned how to improve your organization and that can be a host of covering a variety of things but you've got to be you know strong enough to be able to open your ears and say i actually want to hear what you've got to say and I guess that's growth mindset, isn't it? You know, as leaders and managers, growth mindset is essential to try and achieve. Anyone can have it. It's not special. It's not unattainable. Anyone can have a growth mindset. We've just got to be willing to listen to criticism and to be able to take that on board, not react and go away and process it. Adam, you've not really done it this way. You should have done it this way. I felt like this while I've been working for you, blah, 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 blah. Okay, thank you for your information. I've got all your data, et cetera, et cetera. Go away, process it. How can I improve? What's my action plan? What have I learned from this? What do I then implement into my business, into my leadership? What do I need to learn to then change and improve? Mark, you looked like a kid in a candy store when I said exit interviews. Uh, do you know what? I think exit interviews are one of the biggest things that every organization should have. And I've worked for so many companies that don't do them or didn't have them before I started. Now, I've always, I kind of disagree with you, Paul, slightly, but I would always do them while the person's still employed during their notice period. So I tend to get them to come in a week after they've handed in their notice, once you know, actually, they're not going to change their mind, get them to come in, talk about what they owe back, whether it's a uniform, any equipment they've got, talk about the P45, payroll, how it's going to work, the last working day, make sure they've got reference details, and then present them with this questionnaire and talk through it. And I think regardless of whether they're negatively leaving or they're leaving because actually they've got a breath of promotion or whatever, there's always something that a company can do to change and actually being, you know, receptive to positive or negative feedback. And actually, if they say I'm leaving because of X, Y, Z, actually ask them, what would you like to have seen? If you were still here, what would you have liked to have seen? And then put that into action because actually then you can prevent other staff members leaving. You can also be honest with your staff team and say, well, actually, we just had Michelle leave. And she said, actually, she left because of X, Y, Z, because it'd be common knowledge anyway. And actually, what we've done since is we've implemented ABC. Um, yeah, it surprises me at the amount of organisations that don't do exit planning. All I was going to say there, Mark, was, um, uh, yeah, I agree with you in terms of those pointers. You know, if, if we were putting cards on the table, if I had someone like you working for, for myself and you handed in your notice and I thought, I really don't want to lose Mark. 
that's not an exit interview. That's a, we're going for a cup of coffee to chat things out to see yeah, why yeah. It, it may be termed as that. Um, but I've got a period of time of your notice period to try and put things in place to resolve to stop you from leaving. Um, now, if anybody's listening to this that has worked for me in the past and they think, well, you never done that with me, apologies. Um, I've, I've probably just <laughs> let you know that we went straight to the exit strategy. I'm, I'm joking, please don't sue me. Um, but the, um, on the basis of that, yeah, I tend to look at it and go, there is, as businesses and organizations grow, uh, what you're you're trying to do, particularly when you are sort of in a level where you you can't man manage people, you're not with them um, all day, and and the size of the team is too big. The um, important thing is to actually look for patterns. So if I had 100 people um, that left the organisation over the course of the year, and you employed 10,000 people, then actually that number is is not as alarming as what it would be if you only employed 500. But you will find patterns in there, patterns that allow you to rectify and fix um, your business. And why would you just allow that information to walk out a door? So even if you think these are a waste of time, they don't work. Yeah. Do you know what? 50% of them, you may not get what you wanted from it. But 50% of them, you might get what you wanted from it. And uh, I'd rather take half the lottery ticket, winning lottery ticket than none at all. I think you touched on a good point around going for coffee, though, because an exit interview doesn't need to be or whatever we want to call it. It doesn't need to be a questionnaire or a survey or whatever. Mm. It could be, actually, I want to say thank you for all your hard work. You've worked here for X amount of years. Let's go grab a Costa or a Starbucks or let's go for lunch or whatever and actually just have an informal chat. And you can document that after, actually. They told me they were leaving because of XYZ and whatever. It doesn't have to be so structured. And I think sometimes we just should have had Sonia on to talk about exit interviews from Nectar HR. But... I think sometimes we get so bogged down with forms and processes yeah. that we get actually we're dealing with people and having informal conversations actually sometimes a lot better. I think, uh, yeah, I think the most important thing is you're trying to find a way in which to plant a seed that says to the person, you know, the door is open. So everybody is entitled and wants to go over to the other side at some point and try it out and rightly so. Um, but, you know, what you don't want is pride or grievance getting in the way. But when they want to come back, they feel... That, that they can't make contact. So open that door wide and you can do that in those sort of you know, informal information gathering meetings to turn around and say, do you know what, there is no hard feelings. I've got a salesperson who, um, young young lad, phenomenal, um, and I, I was mentoring him in his sales and he was doing very, very well. And then him and his girlfriend decided they want to go off and travel Europe. So he's handed in his notice, he's only young. And I'm the first person to turn around and say, yes, I'm gutted you're going um, because we were on a, a pathway to where I, I wanted you to be and I see your future. Um, but you've got an opportunity to go travel Europe, go grow up a little bit, go mature a little bit, go and explore and enjoy. But as soon as you've decided that you need to settle down, you need that sustainable job again, we pick up right where you've left off. So don't be not wanting to chap on my door. And that's the sort of thing that, that you can plant that seed and say, you know, it's open. And, it, you know, he's continually messaging me on LinkedIn. He's continually posting me pictures of, of where he's at in Europe. So it shows you've not closed the door. 
I think, honestly, really great tips, all of that around exit interviews. And I think if you are listening to this or watching this and you've never done an exit interview before, you've never tried an exit interview before, look into them, look into it, start understanding data, start understanding how you can then use that to, to benefit yourself. So let's take one step backwards then. So we, we, we've we not got someone leaving us just yet, but I think we have to recognise and self-reflect in our positions that we didn't get here by staying in the same company. We got to where we are by moving on and by progressing and by improving ourselves and, and moving on to pastures new. So why do you think it is we get so bloody offended when people leave our businesses? Why, why can't we mirror it and go, actually, I was that person once moving on to a new company. So why am I taking this personally? You know, what, what, why do we, why, why is that our reaction? Because we're in the Facebook groups, Mark and I are in the Facebook groups and we see, oh, another three people have left. Oh, more people have left and more people are moving on. And it's hard, it's difficult, but should we actually be celebrating people moving on rather than feeling saddened and gutted about it? I mean, Paul, you're a provider at the minute, you know, what you've, you've just explained it perfectly. How can we get out that mindset? I think it, it, it's a difficult one because one of the most difficult jobs that any manager has is, is staffing the floor, is, is having enough bodies on the floor. And, you know, recruitment is... You know, we're, we're in a, a crisis time when it comes to recruitment because, every, you know, there's not many people can turn around and say that they've got people banging on the door to, to ask for jobs, particularly in social care. So, you know, it's a stress that goes on to the manager. So I think there's sort of like an emotional um, response that you get from the manager at the time that, oh, why are you doing this? Why are you leaving me? You're making my life 10 times harder now. And that that's understandable. It's human nature. But in, in reality... You are right in what you've just said there. You know, progression is the number one thing that 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 people in in jobs want to. You know, there's something called par, and it goes um, the three most important things to people, and it's progression, autonomy, and recognition. Now, I always align, and I, I say this to a lot of young managers. I, I align it to sort of like um, a football analogy, if you like. When you first start off in management, you may be in a 20 or a 30 bedded care home. That, that um, is a local authority uh, driven. They may be sort of like a requires improvement, hoping to get good. You, that's where you learn how to manage. That, that's where you learn the bread and butter that is going to give you the experience. But like every manager, they want to manage in the premiership. They want the big box. They want the, and if we were relating that, that's 120 better. That's the, hundred thousand pound a year business development manager but you've got to go through the divisions to be able to get there or you should go through the divisions to get to there so that's your progression route your autonomy comes with responsibility that you're given to manage the higher up you go and the recognition will come in the reward and the status and the awards that, that you may receive but what we should never do um, in business of smaller businesses is when you get your uh Jurgen Klopp, and it pains me saying that as a Manchester United fan, but when you get your Jurgen Klopp or your Pep Guardiola, don't stop them. One day they're going to be managing Liverpool and Manchester City. Um, let them let them aspire and, and be grateful that they turned your business around in the period of time that you had them. You know, your manager brings you outstanding. Of course, they're going to be wanted property. And if you can't afford to keep them, don't hold them back. No. I know. I was just going to say, I think if you are having those conversations with your staff through informal or formal supervisions, 
a lot of the time you will know that they're looking for a job because hopefully you've built that relationship that they're coming to you and saying actually you know what there's nowhere for left for me to go here actually i want to go and spread my wings and go here and they should be honest enough to come and have that conversation and should have that culture and then that's not going to happen all the time depending on the manager and the service and i'm pleased we're talking about this because i've always had this thing about you get people that stay in the company they join and that's the only company they know versus somebody probably a bit like me that moves around because actually I wanted different experiences and to learn new skills. But actually, if we're coaching somebody to be the version of us that we want them to be in the future, actually allowing them, like you said, to spread their wings and go out, that's only a positive because actually what they're going to be doing is managing a service that's managed well and managed right. They're going to be nurturing their staff who in turn will be new managers. But actually, the people that we're supporting are going to get a fantastic service. So I think Mark, absolutely. And, and the other thing is that if, if you're a single entity business and you don't have, you know, pathways into other um, scalability businesses for people, then the only way that people can progress is to actually create an opportunity. An opportunity can only come if someone leaves a position. So, you know, you can't all of a sudden turn around and make 10 managers within your, your, um, your one care home. So you should be always looking, we're going, you know, we're talking about succession planning, you know, for succession planning to work, it's better if it's an internal process that you've got, and therefore you're breeding your next managers, but people need to move on in order for those positions to become available. And I'm a massive advocate in this, um, that, you know, if, if you've been someone that's had the same manager for the last 20 or 30 years, and I mean no disrespect, and please don't, uh, Put it out that that is you know me saying that you should get rid of anybody but there's a stagnation that comes with that people need a new challenge a fresh challenge something to go after and we have got to bring new ideas to it so that's why you find a lot of big companies the ceo or the md will change around every five or six years and move to a different company to present those challenges and allow the birth in the future of the generation that's coming up below oh definitely and i would you know this is just me just saying this if you've got a member of staff who's had three dentist appointments, two haircuts, and uh, has had to go and take their dog to the vets all in the space of three weeks, they're probably looking for a new job and going to be <laughs> They're not looking after their mental health and well-being and physical health. They're looking for a new job. I completely agree. Succession planning has to be an internal process. It's got to be something that we encourage people. And it's nice to create new roles, safeguarding lead, falls lead, end-of-life champion and all of that. What we don't want to do is patronise people by going, I can't promote you to a manager, but here you go. You can be the lead of answering the door. You know, there's only so many roles we can actually create within organisations. And you're right, Paul. We need to one day just be able to go, look, you're not going to be here forever. So what are you going to do? And this brings me back now to the beginning. We're hiring someone. We're interviewing I quite like when people start, the first thing you ask them is, how long are you going to be with me? You know, starting that succession planning at the beginning. So, Paul, employing new people, what is the best tactics to start that succession planning early? I think I think the first thing to do is to not actually label people. I think that happens too much within social care. You know, we're looking for a, you know, a label, a job description. Actually... If you look at your team, what dynamics are you looking for? Are, are you looking for someone who um, has intellect about them? Are you looking for somebody that's strong-minded? Are you looking for a good communicator? Are you looking for someone that is fun and bubbly or nurturing and supportive? Look at your team and instead of going, I'm looking for um, 
someone to deliver care work, what type of character are you looking for? And home in on that and build your dynamics of the team. That creates an individual in the first place. And then you can work out very quickly at the interview stage, you know, this is what we're looking for. This is what I see the vision of her company. This is why I'd like you to actually come and work in this company. This is where I see your role being in six months or 12 months or two years time. And this is the person who I want to be uh, nurturing you to get to that position. And I think, you know, advertising and interviewing a specific type of character that you are looking for that fits the mold, the mold and the vision that you have um, for the company will more entice someone to turn around and say, this is where I want to be. Whereas opposed to actually turn around and saying, we need two care workers, we need two night staff workers, etc. It's not exactly appetizing to people. I just wanted to bring in Helen's comment here. So she said that we talked about moving up the ranks and supporting career pathways, which is key, but there's also a place for managers from outside the sector with transferable skills and the right values with the right support to develop new insights and thinking. And I completely agree. I think we sometimes get, and I know I've spoken about this before about interviews, we get so bogged down with the questions that we're asking that we actually forget the person that's at the opposite side of the table what they've done, what their past is. And actually, like you just said, Paul, do they have the right values that align with the company? And do they want to support people with whatever support they need? And actually, yeah, there are people outside that sector. You know, we've got people from customer services that do an amazing job that could easily come. I'm going to apologise because I've got a dog that is scratching at the door. Do I get it? So I can tell from Adam's face, you can obviously hear it. So I'll hand back over to Adam and mute it. <laughs> No, I think, you know, some of the best managers I've met are people who didn't start in social care. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the best managers I've met, I mean, I'm going to name it Palvi, Palvi Doji. If you don't know Palvi, Palvi is an incredible, incredible social care leader. Didn't start in social care, but has brought a wealth of experience into the role and has that passion for people and that desire, has the right values to work in care. And I think Helen's right. There has to be this entry point level because, too often do I see managers go, oh, I really don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do an interview. I don't know how to uh, discipline. I don't know what to do in this scenario. They're amazing carers and their owners, their business managers, their leaders, whoever it is that has employed them and promoted them have gone, you're a fab carer. You can be manager of my care home. And actually, they don't have a manager's bone in their body. And that's not a bad thing. They may not be natural leaders. Yes, you can learn it. Yes, you can develop those skills. But we, we rush people into those leadership roles sometimes. And it's a, it's a huge detriment to them and to their organisations because they will become disheartened. They won't enjoy the role. They will then go to three dentist appointments one week and then come back next week with a new job. You know, they're going to leave the sector and then we're going to lose more managers. Um, so I think it's definitely important to, to look outside um, when we're bringing new people in. I think Helen's, you know, 100% on the money there. Um, sometimes when you've been involved in care for as long as I have and you two have, um, you can be trapped in a bubble and, and basically you only see what's going on around you. Um, when you bring someone from the outside with you from the outside, they come with a completely different skill set and mindset and they freshen things up. They're what I'd like to call disruptors and disruption is a brilliant word. So... I often say, you know, going off what Adam's just said there, you know, the amount of managers that I will coach, mentor, support um, throughout the year, and my always my first question, and these are normally managers that have come up through the system, if you like, 
um, and I'll say, okay, where do you need to, where are you going to be in three months, six months, 12 months, 18 months, 36 months? And they don't know. They don't have an answer. And that's because they, they lack that leadership uh, knowledge, that vision. Now, the problem is, what I will say to them, if you don't know where you're going to be, then how on earth are you going to lead everybody else to get there? You're just expecting them to get there. But we need the blueprint. We need to know what it is. We need to know what we're working towards. We need that mission statement and goal. And that's the bit that sometimes a creative person from the outside comes in and they've got that already. That has been their blueprint. And they bring it to a business and all of a sudden that business starts to excel. You don't need everybody to be the leader. You need someone with a vision. You don't need everybody to be hands-on. You know, I've often said to managers and when I talk to uh, fellow MDs or CEOs, your job is to be the helicopter looking down at what's happening and work out where it needs to be. If you are down in amongst it, if you are hands-on, whilst that may get you a really good reputation with those that work with you, who's actually doing your job? Because you're the only person in the company that should be qualified to do that. And they need you to do that. So, you know, get yourself off the floor. It's nice to go on. It's nice to be part of the team. But in the main, do the job that you are supposed to do because who's leading the company? Go on, Adam. Go on. No, I was just going to say nobody likes a martyr either. You know, I know that sounds, and I don't want to really don't want to offend anyone. I've been there. I've done the 24-hour shifts and cried down the phone to my other half because I can't come home. And he goes, well, what's going to happen if you drop dead? Well, it won't be like that, Stephen, because, you know, I need to do this and I'm the only one that can do this. No, you are not. No one wants a martyr. No one wants you to work yourself into the ground. Get yourself a system in place and realize that you're not lazy by being away from the front line at times. That's not lazy. You're doing a role that no one else in the business is doing. Oh, it needed to be said. Well done, Paul. Thank you for saying that. I think it helps give you a better work-life balance. But it leads me on to what I was going to say, which actually is, as we look at the staff for the succession planning, is what skills and training they actually need. Because actually what we spoke about is actually you have somebody that might have been a care worker. And I look at myself for this scenario. And I know I've had conversations with Paul about it separately and Adam. And actually, I came from being very hands-on and now I'm in a role managing the budget and finance, but that's not my strongest point. But I think it's about being honest about actually, that's not my strongest point. I need upskilling on that, need a lot of training and training and training and training on it. But actually, if we work for a company that doesn't want to offer you that training, or you've got somebody that doesn't feel like you've got a culture of being honest, and actually, if you admit that you haven't got a skill, you could potentially lose your job or go on a performance route, then actually your company could very quickly come into trouble because you've got somebody at the top that doesn't have the skills for the rest of the team. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I'd like to class myself as the hardest working, laziest person I know. Um, and, and the reason why I would form that is every business that I've started up, and I often say this to the team, um, every position that is created in the company, at some point I've done that. Be it starting a care home, you were the carer on the floor, you were the senior, you were the deputy manager, you were the manager. At some point you take on those roles. In the training business, I delivered the training, I sent the invoice out, I chased the money, I'd done the certificate, I built the course. So you start off like that. But ultimately what you're trying to do is get to a point where someone is coming in to start to take those roles off you because they will do them better. You know, they, they, will, they will take ownership of them. You've got too many roles and you need to offload. And now you're starting to build your effective team up. And the ones that come in early and learn the values and get that one-to-one -one time with you as to where you see things, 
tend to be the ones that progress up the ladder quicker because they have a dream. If you tell them one day, you know, you're, you're the only person in finance today in the staff meeting you have of your department is just you. But think about this, in, in a year's time, if we grow by this much, you could have your own team of four people. In 10 years time, if we grow by this much, you could actually be the director of that service and uh, so on. In 15 years time, you might be the managing director of the company. You may have even bought me out. You know, that's the sort of mentality that builds that, that succession up. And before you know it, you know, CBAT is five years old, um, five years old on Sunday. Um, but before you know it, um, you are sat with 300 staff and departments all over the place and you've got a team that's gelled, well-knitted, has the values and don't want you there, which is great for me because then I get to go play golf or go on holiday as Adam always tells me that I'm on um, and relax. And that's the bit that you're always trying to create. And I try and do that within every business because that's the progression route that it needs to have. And ultimately in succession planning and managers need to think like this as well. You know, I sometimes see managers close the door on deputies. We don't let them get involved in this, that or the other, because that's my job. That's a fear factor. Actually, your job is to make them your successor. You're coaching, you're mentoring and nurturing them so that actually you can go home and chill and relax or you can take some well-needed time off and know that they've got it. You know, that that's the key bit. You're building up teams to actually be repla replacing, in the end, you. And at some point, my team will turn around and say, as they often do now, what are you doing in today? You know, and that's brilliant. That's fantastic. I think you've touched on a really good point with regards to managers and deputies, because I think there definitely is that fear factor that you're going to upskill your deputy, you're going to give them the training and that level five, and they're going to stab you in the back and take your job. And actually, if you upskill them and give that time to them, they're not going to stab you in the back. You're actually going to create a massive, you know, work personal friendship but actually together united are going to be able to manage that service and that team and do amazing things but there definitely is that fear factor that actually oh, they're not trained too many staff and i think even when you're talking about frontline staff oh don't give them a level three because they'll just go down the road and be a senior well actually they go down the road and be a senior and they're working for a company that won't train them they're only going to tell those staff well actually i just left a company that paid for my level two my level three my five, whatever and you'll get staff through word of mouth, but actually you are going to train and upskill them. I just want to, there's, there's so much to unpack here. And again, we're heading in towards the, the, the sort of last quarter of the show tonight. And I think we could have gone on for, for hours and hours. When it comes to um, what you were just saying then, Mark, about putting people through the level three, the level four, the level five, level seven, whatever the, the qualification is, we need to get out this mindset that they owe us something back for that. You know, we're, we're training and developing. They don't owe us anything. We, we, we don't get to demand anything back from them. We're doing it to benefit themselves and benefit social care as a whole. You know, we need to get out of this mindset that I've done this for you now, so you owe it me. No, we're not, we're not selfish givers. We don't give just to get back. You know, let's actually look at, you know, improving our workforces no matter what and just on what you were saying paul there definitely is and so if you if there are any directors watching this anyone sitting here going actually i want to open up a care home and i need a new manager don't put all your eggs in one basket if you train your manager up to be the best person in your organization like i used to be sometimes and you could do everything you did your social media you do everything and they go actually I'm doing everything here and I can't delegate because no one else is going to take on these roles. I'm going to go elsewhere. You've just lost the driving force. You've just lost your business because mm -hmm. you put all your eggs in one basket, delegate, spread the workload, spread the love. 
in fact, start looking at the fact, like, do you need just one manager? Do you need a manager? Or can you get someone to be registered and nominated individual? And actually, can you share the joy of developing the service across a wider team? You know, um, let's, let's think about Beersorg. You know, Adam, just on that point, my two best salespeople, and I, I they definitely term Wolf of Wall Street or Wolves of Southport, um, were both deputy care managers. So I had no sales experience whatsoever, but wanted an opportunity to still be involved in the industry but do something different. It didn't take much support and training to all of a sudden turn them into people that were natural um, sales. Why? Because they have the knowledge, the experience, they understand what it's like for the industry, they understand what training is and what effective training can do, but you've given them the skill set for sales. You've got to do that in your own organizations. You know, you talked about social media there. You, know, you should be looking at it, who in your organization actually could become your social media champion because that could lead them. At the end of the day, that might mean that you lose them at some point because they take on some fancy job in a big marketing agency. But that's how life works. You start off somewhere and you, if, if you've got the right character and the right support, it, working in social care should lead to you being able to take on any job in the world and it can push you, whether it's moving into teaching as I did, uh, whether it is moving into marketing, whether it's moving into sales. It's about actually being nurtured in the right way and supported in the right way and then someone giving you an opportunity. So one question I had, and I'm going to direct it to Paul, is we touched on it earlier that it shouldn't be the manager that's in charge of succession planning, who do you think it should be in the organisation? Do you think it should be somebody in HR? Do you think it should be the person that owns the company? Who do you think it should be? I think ultimately the person that owns the company, you know, the box stops with them in reality. When I look at a company, I, I, I look at a company as a separate entity. So as much as that company may be, you know, my company in terms of shareholdings, that company is providing income, a lifestyle for every single person that works there, every single person that buys a product from it. it it's, it's giving out so much more than just you. But you have a responsibility at the head of it to make sure that if something was to occur, that it doesn't affect the lifeline of everybody that needs that business to function. So I always look at it and go, OK, well, if something happens to me, who, who becomes me at that moment in time? And my job, therefore, is then to highlight that person and start to work very close with that, closely with that person to understand who they are, for them to make me to maybe pass on things that are likable about me or for me to pass on things that they go, no, I'm not going to be that person. I'm going to do things differently and create something differently. But that's what you're nurturing. Now, at the same token, everybody that is in a responsibility of seniorship should be also looking down their line and going, who have I got in my team that could potentially become me? Because you shouldn't be thinking self-centered about yourself. You should be thinking about how many people actually need from, from this business. It's a separate entity. Now, at some point, and uh, you know, again, I hope a lot of mine aren't listening, but at some point, you know, I may decide to to retire, hand up the reins. It, it could be an exit strategy of sale, et cetera, like that. Life must go on without me. I want to be able to, you know, 
I probably won't be looking back at my age in 100 years' time, but what a legacy it would be if in 100 years' time the business is still there, the business is still growing, and so many more people have managed to get so much from it. So I never look at it and say it's mine, it's hers. That's what we're creating. And succession planning, everybody has a responsibility in a senior position to actually look at it and say, okay, if something happened to me, who takes up these reins? Because the business can't afford that not to happen. I think, um, yeah, part of business is continuity planning. That's spot on. And I'm probably touches on what I'm going to say now, because, you know, you are always on holiday, Paul, for, for starters. You know, you're, you're jet <laughs> not that bad. I am away next week. <laughs> all over the world. My Facebook is usually you in your Speedos going, wow, the sun. Not, you know, it is what it is. But we don't have to succession plan just for us leaving and going for a new role. Actually, we need to make sure that our teams can cope when we're not there. Because if you are in another country and your flight is even an hour away, there is nothing you can do. And we need to make sure that our teams can cope without us no matter what. So actually, succession planning should be part of your business continuity plan. If the manager is not here, what goes on? How do things get sorted? How do we prioritize? What do we do? What changes? What happens? Um, and I think that's really important. You know, it's not just about when we leave, because as managers, we need our time off. And the last thing we want to do is being pestered on the phone constantly. Well, it's part of being a manager. No, it's not. You've been lied to. Whoever told you that is a big fat fibber. Not that I'm fat phobic, and you know, it's just they are a big fibber. And it's not part of being a manager. Succession plan to make sure you can have your downtime as well. Um, so if anyone wants to know how to go on 15 holidays a year and make sure that their teams are looked after and supported, get in touch with Paul. Adam, let me just tell you a quick little story about this. Um, I took over a, a care facility which was not performing that well. And uh, a young girl came for an interview and just within two or three days, you were looking at this person and going, there is just something special about you. Now, she moved up the ranks very quickly to uh, senior and team leader, and she was very effective at doing that. We, the manager who was in position left. I thought it was far too soon for this girl. I knew she was a future manager. I thought it was far too soon to put her in that position. I thought the pressures and the strains would get to her. Um, and I wanted to nurture her a bit more and spend more time with her to develop her. Brought, I brought another manager in. And it imploded. It was terrible. This manager had the wrong, you know, I, at the interview said all the right things, track, track record was all the right things, but came in and was very much, um, she, she was screaming, shouting at staff to do things. She was very lazy in terms of her, uh, her work ethic, and she never bonded the team. She separated them apart. So I asked her to leave. So then I was sat there and I went, if I don't do not give this girl this opportunity now, she's gonna she's gonna leave because although I think she might not be ready, she there's something burning inside her and I can't turn her down again. So I got hold of her and I said, I know you're very young, I know you've never managed before, but I think you have to take the time. Sometimes life presents itself to something, you have to go for it. She was the manager of that service for about two months and COVID happened. I've never seen someone deal with a situation, communicate with people, get everybody on board, bond, unite a service together. 
She is, what, two and a bit years on now. She's the reason why I can go on holidays because she is just phenomenal. So what I would say to people is it's actually about believing in someone and sometimes we will make wrong decisions, explain your decisions. Explain. I told her I thought it was too early, um, but I knew she was going to be amazing. Now, I know that, that she is going to bring an outstanding to the table and I know at that point someone's going to come in and want to take her away from me. But here's the thing. I think at that point I may have had her in service for over 10 years and uh, were an amazing 10 years. So when people say to me, talent spotting, you just know, you just see something in someone. And when you get that, nurture it, coach it, pass on that information because that person will one day allow you to go on holiday. That brings me on to something that I want to speak about which is around what you do is you've got somebody in post that's been in post for a long period of time. They might be approaching retirement age and I'll just be very honest and be like, actually, I love my job and I don't want to go anywhere, but you've got people that want to move into that role. There's no other roles they want to do. They just want to move into that role. Do you allow people to move to another company and spread their wings there and learn new skills and have those experiences? Or would you, create a side role or an additional role or a deputy kind of role to retain that person what would you do paul um it would i would be looking at it in terms of how what period do we have left of the of the the manager that's in post because there's some people that if you lose them you're never going to be able to get them back I would create a position. I've often said this to people. You may have enough carers, enough seniors, enough managers within your services, and someone comes and chaps on the door, and immediately you think this person is amazing. Now, if you turn them away at that point and say, I'm really sorry, we don't have any vacancies at this moment in time. No, because even if that person for a year means that you're overstaffed and it's cost you another £20,000, that person will be worth far more than £20,000 to you in the long run. So create the position, create the alternative, allow that person the option to flourish. If it was someone that came along in a deputy manager's position and their ambition was in six months, they want to be a manager, but you know you've got your manager for the next five years at least, then at that point you have to have an adult conversation with them about where the business is and what options there are. Oh, I thought Adam was going to unmute. <laughs> One thing before, and I'm very... I was trying and it wouldn't let me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's okay. One thing I wanted to share that I found online um, through the NHS Leadership Academy is a whole document and website on succession planning. And the, it's obviously for the NHS, but it could easily be taken out and adapted for social care. So there's guidance, there's templates, there's diagnostic tools. Um, I was looking through just before we went live on this show, and I actually think it's really good. It talks about enabling the culture of talent management, um, inclusion, and bits and pieces. So I'll pop that into the comment box, but definitely take a look at that if you want to look at putting succession planning into your workplace. And I think that's, you know, it is brilliant. And, you know, we, we hear NHS Leadership uh, Leadership Academy and we recoil and shudder in horror, but actually there is work going on there to try and unite the, the leadership development for, for health and social care. I mean, if only there was a professional institute in this country that, you know, supported and helped the leadership uh, development skills of managers, but do we know of one? 
of course we do. Um, I mean, look, we're towards the end of the show now, and I think there's more that we could have spoken about because when going back to when you asked Mark whose responsibility is succession planning, I would have to add that it's the person who wants to progress. And I think we need to do a show discussing CPD and ILPs. We need to understand what an individual learning plan is, and we need to understand how we monitor and track our own continual professional development because there is so much stuff that people do and then don't document. And then they go for a new job and go, oh, yeah, no, I'm, I am good at this and I'm good at that. No, no, document it. Show everything that you've done. If you've if you've been told to go to a webinar by your manager, document that you've been to that, that webinar. Tell them what you've learned from that webinar. How are you going to implement it into your role? So I think succession planning, like everything, is everyone's got a role in it. Um, but I think if you are at the moment watching this and you're – a healthcare professional, maybe you're entry level, maybe you've gone to a senior role, maybe you're a deputy itching for your uh, actual manager to come to a, a unfortunate accident or, um, you know, to, to move on to a new role. Start looking to yourself and go, actually, if I want a future, I need to be a part of creating it myself as well. I need to take some ownership on this because yeah. it's not going to be given to me. You've got to work at it. So there's 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 equal rewards maybe not equal, but there's responsibility on both sides, isn't there, for um, uh, succession planning. So, Paul, would you like to come back at some point and discuss... Oh, I'd continual love to come back. I love this. I love this. Um, oh, oh, just on, on that note, though, Adam, um, on what you just said, I know time's sort of like run over. But one bit of advice that I would leave people with is if you're looking in your organisation and there is one person that does a job that no one else knows how to do, Start fixing that tomorrow, because that's your problem. Absolutely spot on. So, if, yes, if there is someone in your business who can do a job and that no one else can do, you've got a problem, fix yeah. it. Perfect advice, perfect advice. Mark, any parting words for tonight? No, I just shared a bit in the comments. I was just saying from an employee's perspective, also be selfish. Think of training that you can do that will upskill yourself for the future. So like Paul said earlier, actually, starting in social care, and then moved into training. Actually, you could do some training or teaching qualifications, not to be a trainer or a teacher today or tomorrow, but actually you never know what's in the pipeline for your future. So if you're working for a company that's really good at upskilling and offering training, is be selfish and take it all. Okay. That goes both ways though as well, doesn't it? If you are a proprietor and you're thinking, actually, I could really do with someone who's good at doing this or good at doing that, put the training out there, go to your team, look, I've got this training available, does anyone want to do it? Because yes, you're going to improve their skills, yes, you're going to help them get better and go on to a new job, but you're also going to fill a gap in your own business while they're with you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, quid pro quo, it works both ways. So, oh, I've, I've loved tonight, I think it's great. I love yeah. anything that encourages people coming into care and staying in care. Um, I am not here next week. I am on leave. I am having a week off. I am having a mental health break. I am going to a spa. I'm doing an ISO tank. We're doing all sorts to, honestly, just to reconnect ground. So I won't be on socials. I will not be on the show. I will be leaving you in the very capable hands of Mark, though. So, Mark, what are we on next week? Next week, I am prepared. We are talking digital innovation, and we are joined by Morton from Sequoia, Katie Thorne, and another Clubhouse moderator. So Sanger will also be joining us. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I don't know too much about digital innovation, so I'm going to sit back and absorb the learning. 
I think it's going to be a great show. I think, I mean, um, when we did the um, uh, UK Care, no, the Health Plus Care show um, back in May, uh, we did a, 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 a Oxford Union style debate around digital innovation and, you know, is it the way forwards? Is there other forms of innovation we need to look at? Can we get by without digital? I think it's going to be a really interesting show. Um, and three very, very knowledgeable people joining us um, for that as well. So please do tune in next week, as usual, 7.30 on YouTube, LinkedIn and Facebook. Um, but go to our website. You can watch it direct from there. Make sure you subscribe to the channel. You will never miss an episode then. Um, Paul, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you for having me. Mark, lovely to see you once again. Um, but until then, good night. Mark, I'll see you next week, and I will be back the week after. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Caring View. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, as well as various podcasting sites. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, and share to become part of the conversation.